Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take copies of the scriptures this morning. Open the book of Exodus, chapter 40. We'll be reading verses 34 through 38 this morning. The last five verses of the book of Exodus. When you are there, would you stand with me as I read God's holy word for us this morning? Hear the word of the Lord. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness. To the praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is it. 86 sermons. This is the 86th sermon on the book of Exodus. 4,300 minutes. After this sermon, you could listen to all 86 sermons in 72 hours. That's three days, I think, if my math is right. So if you just listen to it on repeat, you can listen to the whole book of Exodus in three hours. We have gone from the beginning to the end. We've squeezed much truth and goodness from the book of Exodus. And after 86 sermons, I feel as if I have just scratched the surface. But now we reach the climax. We reach the point we have been anticipating what we have been waiting for. And Moses finishes writing the book of Exodus 
in a very poetic fashion. The rhythm and repetition of these verses are meant to solidify them in our minds so that we do not forget these truths. What is fascinating, as we reach the climax of the books of Exodus, is that the Exodus is not the main point of Exodus. The Exodus is a means to an end. The Exodus is to lead to a greater purpose and hope for the people of God. It wasn't just that God had redeemed His people from slavery out of the land of Egypt. The main point is what He was leading them to. What is He giving them that's better than Egypt? With this climax, it is like Moses is also leading us to reminisce upon everything that has brought us to this point. It makes me think about what you might do if you lived in the South. After a nice meal of comfort food, you go out to your rocking chairs on your porch with a big glass of iced tea in your hand, and you sit there, watch the Spanish moss lightly sway in the evening breeze as you reminisce about life. You know that's what Cracker Barrel tries to do? Like, that's why they have all the rocking chairs out there. Like, come in, eat some fried chicken or catfish, go out, sit in the rocking chairs, right? Reminisce about life. As we think about, think, think through the many events that occurred in the book of Exodus there is something that is crucial that we must take notice of, absolutely crucial to our understanding of Exodus and the whole Bible. It is the reason why Exodus is necessary and crucial even in the Bible because the book of Exodus gives us a snapshot, if you will, of the entire course of of human history. If you want to know what God is up to, if you want to know what God is doing, if you still want to know what God is going to do, you will find it in the book of Exodus. This is why the book of Exodus is relevant for us to spend 86 sermons on it. Not only does it tell us a crucial part of Israel's history, not only does it give us a snapshot of the whole course of human history, it is also immensely personal because it tells our story. Exodus is meant to unveil your story and my story. And these events are meant to resonate in our hearts and lives and minds because the story of Exodus is what we are to live out. The trajectory of Exodus is to be our trajectory of life. The ups and the downs of Exodus are our ups and downs. With each event, with every line in it, the sovereign Lord is communicating to us. He knows us. He knows what we need. He knows the end from the beginning. And His greatness and His glory will reign supreme over everything and over everyone. And that is great news for us. 
While we are reminiscing over the book of Exodus, let us draw our minds back to two verses. You can flip back if it's helpful. Exodus 25, 8. There it says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Then a few chapters after that, Exodus 29, verses 45 through 46. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. That is what the Lord is going to do for His people. Because to dwell with God is to know God. It's to live in relationship with God. It's to relate to Him in the way that we were designed to relate to Him. And if we think about the whole scope of God's Word, there in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve And he put Adam and Eve in this Garden of Eden, this paradise. But Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They did not live how they were designed to live. They had perfect fellowship and perfect unity with God. And that wasn't enough for them. They rejected his goodness. They rejected his word. They rejected his way. They rejected the fact that they had to depend on Him for everything. And so, while God placed Adam and Eve in this beautiful paradise, paradise was lost. And as paradise was lost, God put an angel there to guard the garden with a flaming sword who would keep anyone out who would try to get back into God's paradise. Do you want to live in paradise? When we think, man, if we could just get back to the Garden of Eden, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be good? But all of our desire, perhaps, to get back to that paradise is misplaced because God is not going to merely give us paradise like the Garden of Eden. He's going to give us a better paradise, a surpassing paradise where He will again dwell with His people. And so we are not looking for merely paradise regained. We're looking for a surpassing paradise, a greater paradise, a paradise where we will dwell with God again in perfect harmony and fellowship and peace and know Him and relate to Him the way that we were designed to relate to Him and that all sin and all death and all mourning and all grief will be eradicated. These verses serve as reminders for us that what we read in Exodus 40 is 
the Lord fulfilling the promises that he made to his people. It's the Lord showing himself to be faithful, even when his people weren't so faithful. It is the Lord assuring us that he will accomplish his purposes in the earth. What the Lord wants to do, he will do it. He will complete it, and no one and nothing will thwart him or stop him or slow him down. Do you think that our world is against God? It is, but guess what? God will prevail over the world. It will not slow him down. It will not stop him. He will prevail. Jesus wins in the end. And the sign for all to see, to know that this is absolutely the case, is the manifested glory of God. How do we know that God is going to accomplish all that he has promised to accomplish? How do we know that his plan will succeed and will be fulfilled? Well, God manifests his glory. What do we long for in in our world? We think, you, you know... I want to know that God's will is going to be done. I want to know that he will prevail. Maybe better political policies, maybe better politicians will get us that. Maybe better economics will get us that. Or other things. I don't know. You could fill it in there. Whatever it is in this world, if everybody just gets along, When God says, if you want the assurance that I'm going to fulfill my will and accomplish my purposes, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you my glory. His glory is the determining factor for the destiny of his people. And the glory of the Lord teaches us a few truths in these verses. These verses all center around the glory of the Lord. And so what do these verses teach us about the glory of the Lord. Number one, God is with us through His glory. God is with us through His glory. God had promised He would dwell with His people. He would live in their midst. This is why He has instructed them, or had instructed them, to build the tabernacle. It was to be His dwelling place, the place where His presence would reside. And immediately after Moses finished the work, it was only then that the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so verse 34 has two propositions. You see those propositions there? Separated by a comma. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That's one proposition. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's the second proposition. And these two propositions run parallel to each other, and they are almost synonymous. So I am proposing that what is said in the first half of the verse is simply restated in the second half of the verse with a slightly different perspective, like surround sound speakers. When these two propositions are put together, we get a fuller and more robust sound, if you will, of what God is doing. So we begin with the cloud. The picture of the cloud is not foreign to us in the book of Exodus. It was the pillar of cloud that led the people by day after they left Egypt. It was the pillar of cloud that stood between the Israelites and the Egyptians as they were encamped on the edge of the Red Sea, just before the Lord opened a way through the Red Sea. 
It was the cloud that descended on Mount Sinai and was said to cover Mount Sinai as a sign for the people that the Lord himself, the presence of the Lord, had descended upon Mount Sinai. What is this cloud? It is the visible manifestation of the glory of the Lord. This close association between the cloud and the glory of God can be seen in Exodus 16.10. Exodus 16.10 says this, And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. So there, this close association, the cloud, the glory of the Lord, the cloud, the glory of the Lord. The Lord's presence is coming to dwell in the midst of His people. This is Yahweh living among His people so that they would be His people and He would be their God. The cloud covering and the glory filling indicate God's desire to give Himself to the people. Here is what you need, Israel. Here is what you need, people of God. You need God Himself. He would be near and close to his people among them. And this is a principle that, is a, that we see throughout God's word. It is the Emmanuel principle or the God with us principle. God had not left his people. God did not forsake his people. He did not write off his people. He did not wipe them off of the face of the earth. He did not leave them to themselves. He did not pull back and stand aloof. God showed his people that he was with them, that he was there. And the world, the world does not want a God who is there. They find that disturbing. They want a God they can control, a God they can manipulate, a God that they can fashion into their own likeness. They want a God who will hold other people accountable for their sins, but not hold them personally accountable for their own sins. But dear brother and sister, we have a God who is with us, who is there. And that is the God that we want. Because this is the God of all comfort, this is the God of all grace, this is the God of all mercy, this is the God of all love. We want God to be there, we want God to be with us. We have a God who is living, who is completely unlike and different than his people. He is the holy God who is near to his people, and he is changing them from being enslaved to their sin to being holy as he is holy. And the, the Emmanuel principle is necessary for us to understand for two reasons. First, and most importantly, it leads us to Jesus Christ. He is, Jesus is, Emmanuel, God with us. He is the embodiment of God's glory. Look for a moment at John 1, if you have your Bibles. John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. I believe this is the Apostle John meditating on Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38. John 1, 14. 
and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or tabernacled among us. And what? We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The people of Israel had Yahweh dwelling among them, and they knew He dwelt among them because they saw the cloud, they saw the glory of the Lord in some visible manifestation. A vague manifestation, a cloud, a cloud is fuzzy, it's hazy, but a visible manifestation nonetheless. But now, what does John say? The glory of the Lord is to be seen in another visible manifestation, not a vague manifestation like a cloud, but a clear manifestation in a man, in a person, in Jesus Christ, who became flesh, to be the visible manifestation of the glory of God. And John says, we have seen His glory. It's a glory that's full of grace and truth. Grace and truth, which come through the person and life and work of Jesus Christ, are a display of the glory of God. This is how we know God is with us. We look to Jesus. We gaze upon Him. He is the glory of God on display in the flesh, the very embodiment of God's glory. But there is something else that we are taught here. There is an appropriate and necessary balance between God's, these are some big words, but hang, hang with me. There is a balance between God's transcendence and God's imminence in these verses. What does that mean? Well, God's transcendence is the idea that He is above us. He is greater than us. He is holy, holy, holy. It highlights His greatness, His magnitude, the fact that He is pure, completely righteous, just, and true. And so God is above us. He is transcendent, but yet He is also imminent. God's imminence is the idea that He is near to us. He is a God who seeks to have relationship with his people. There is some amount of accessibility to him. He wants to be close to his people. He fellowships and communes with his people. And here in these verses in Exodus, we see this balance of transcendence and imminence. The God who is far off and the God who dwells in unapproachable light has come near to live with his people. And we see this transcendence and this imminence in balance perfectly in the cross. The transcendence of God who judges sinners and cannot stand to look upon sin sacrifices His own Son, Jesus Christ, in the place of sinners so that we might be brought to God in greater fellowship as those who have been completely cleansed and forgiven of our sin and clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is there, as Christ died upon the cross, that the tent of the curtain, or the, the, the curtain that was in the, the temple, was torn in two. The, the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, where the very presence of God was thought to dwell. The veil was torn in two from top to bottom, so that we would know there is a new and living way opened to us so we could have greater access to this holy God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If this is the way that Jesus has opened up for us through his flesh and through his sacrifice, what does it say about us when we would, re would refuse or fail to draw near to God? 
That God is saying, draw near to me. Look, I've opened this way. The curtain has been torn in two. You have this access. And we say, no, 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 no. I don't think so. I got other things to do. I got more important things to do. I got things I want to do. God, maybe, maybe I'll get around to drawing near to you. But not today. God has made a way for us that we can access him through the sacrifice of his own son. If we deny or refuse to come through this new living way to him, we are denying the Emmanuel principle that God is with us and we are denying the God who is both transcendent and imminent and therefore worthy of all of our worship and praise. May that never be. Number two, God is humbling us through his glory. God is humbling us through his glory. Next we read, back in Exodus 40, and Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Could it be that the cloud was so thick, the glory was so great, that it kept Moses, the servant of the Lord, the most humble man who ever lived, the one who spoke face-to-face with God as one speaks to a friend, the one who had seen the after-effects of the Lord's glory when he had been covered by the hand of Yahweh while he was secure in the cleft of the rock, the one who heard the name of the Lord proclaimed before him, so great and so glorious was the Lord that Moses, in this moment, was rendered powerless." This is the idea behind not able. He didn't have the ability or the power. The potency of the Lord's glory was more powerful than Moses, and it had overcome him had he tried to enter the tent. But there is another another message coming to Moses and also coming to us. Yahweh is making a declaration that this tent of meeting, this tabernacle, was his house and no one else's. Imagine that you purchased a plot of land. You chose a design for a house to be built on that plot of land. You picked a builder to build the house. And then when the day arrived, the house has been built. You're going to get the keys to your new house. And you find the builder living in the house. What would you do? Get out! This is my house! Even though the pieces of the tabernacle and all its furniture were skillfully constructed, even though Moses had assembled assembled the tabernacle and its complex, this was the place where the Lord dwelt. God was not going to share his house with Moses just as God would not share his glory with another. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Just as Moses was unable to enter the tabernacle because of God's glory, 
So God's glory works in our lives to remind us that God is God and we are not. Let us clothe ourselves with humility in light of God's glory. Let us remember that we are rendered powerless by the potency of God's glory. And let us humble ourselves under the mighty hand of this glorious God. Number three, God is directing us through his glory. God is directing us through his glory. The final three verses look toward the future for Israel. Israel still had a journey before them. They had not made it to the promised land yet. How would they know where to go? How would they find their way through the wilderness? The glory cloud would direct them. It says whenever the cloud was taken up, they would set out. Easy enough, right? Just look to the cloud. When the cloud of glory is lifted up, then set out. But then I find it interesting. Look at verse 37. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. Why does it say that? Had it already said that in verse 36? If the cloud goes up, you go out. But then, if the cloud is not taken up, they did not set out until it was. Why did this have to be specified? I think this detail is given here because the Lord is telling the Israelites, you cannot force my hand. You cannot think that somehow you will direct me. Are we ever tempted to force the Lord's hand? Don't think that if you just set out according to your own will and according to your own way that I am going to follow you. It was to be Yahweh's direction and Yahweh's direction alone, and no one could force his hand and make him do that which was against his will. Lord, I'm waiting for you to act. I want you to do something. Even here with the Israelites, Lord, we are in the wilderness. We need to move. Maybe we should just act and do something, and then the Lord will follow. doesn't work that way. God works, he directs, and we follow. And sometimes we might have to wait and wait and wait. But don't think, I'm just going to set out and glory of the Lord, come along with me. Is that what God said to Abraham? Abraham is getting old and decrepit. And God had said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a child, an heir, from your own bones, from your own body. And Abraham's looking around. I don't got any kids. I'm old. Maybe Eliezer from my household. Take him. Make him my heir. God says, it's not how I'm going to do it. You can't force my hand. I said what I said, and I will do it. Trust me. Or what about Saul? Saul is there. He's, going to, he's about to fight. I think it's the Amalekites. You can check me on that. But he, he's against these armies. And there needs to be a sacrifice that's made. And Saul is there waiting for Samuel to come and make the sacrifice. Make the sacrifice. Make the sacrifice. And what does Saul do? Samuel's not coming. The sacrifice not being made. 
and he makes a sacrifice. Wrong. What happens to Saul? Kingdom is ripped away from him. God is going to direct his people. Do not force his hand. And he does this, this cloud over the tabernacle, this glory that filled the tabernacle was in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Here's this beautiful picture. Everyone could see it. Everyone knew that it was there. God's care was watching over them. He was protecting them. He was guiding them. But this directing happened with some accountability. In the sight of all of the house of Israel, the Lord had made his glory known, and his actions are done in the sight of the people. He reveals himself to them, but that makes them responsible for everything that had been made known. Since God's glory was manifested, they could not live any way that they wanted to. The identity of the people was defined by the presence of the Lord with them. The course and the direction of their lives were directed, guided, and controlled by the manifested glory of God. Yahweh, in His glory, was enthroned before the house of Israel, so He lovingly and graciously ruled over them as their Lord and God. Is the glory of the Lord directing your life? If the glory of the Lord is not directing your life, it will follow that you are unable to glorify God. And I think there's a connection. Glorifying the Lord and the glory of the Lord go together. Do you ever take stock to think, am I glorifying the Lord? Do you ever struggle because sometimes it feels like, God, I'm trying to glorify you, but it feels like one small step forward and ten steps back. It feels like I can't. It feels like something's inhibiting me and stopping me from glorifying you. Could it be that in your struggle to glorify God, it's because you've lost sight of the glory of the Lord? What do you know of God's glory? Do you have an intimate knowledge of His glory? Have you experienced His glory? Has the glory of the Lord been before your eyes? Or have you substituted God's greater glory for things of lesser glory, or even worse, things that have no glory at all? You can't give God glory while simultaneously trying to glorify yourself. And this is what happens. The more you know of and have experienced the glory of the Lord, the more you will be transformed, sanctified, and so useful to glorify the Lord. Being directed by God's glory is the only way we are going to glorify Him 
It is the glory that we see in the face of Jesus Christ. So if we have seen the glory as of the only Son from the Father in Jesus Christ, it goes then that our lives are directed by Him, that is, by Jesus. We are then to obey His commandments, and we are to teach others to obey everything that He has commanded us. Think about that. Just take this and work it out with me. If Jesus Christ is God with us, and He is the visible manifestation of God's glory, and it's God's glory that the Lord is going to use to direct our lives, then whatever Jesus says, we have to do. Whatever Jesus commands, we have to obey. But that leads to a million-dollar question. To what ends is the glory of God directing us? And the answer is revealed in these verses in Exodus with a little phrase repeated twice, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is key because this is the ends for which God created the whole cosmos. Just as the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, a mini cosmos replica, a diorama, if you will. So one day, God's glory is going to fill the entire cosmos. Let me prove it to you. Turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 14, verse 21. Numbers 14, verse 21. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. So that's the hope, right? The hope in numbers. Truly as I live, there's this promise. All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. How about Psalm 72 verse 19? Psalm 72 verse 19. I'm going to take you in order. Psalm 72, verse 19. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple... Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What? The whole earth is full of his glory. A few pages over, Isaiah 11, 9. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Why? For the earth shall be full of what? Here's a little change. Shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Last one, Habakkuk 2.14. Towards the end of the Old Testament. 
Habakkuk 2, 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is what's happening. This is the hope of the whole world. The hope that we see in Exodus 40 with the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle. Our hope is that one day the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord just like that tabernacle was filled with the glory of the Lord in Exodus 40. Just like the temple was filled with the glory of the Lord in 1 Kings 8. So one day the whole earth will be filled with his glory. That is our hope. That is our prayer. That is what we long for. That is what we're shooting for. Do we pray, O Lord, Fill the earth with your glory as the waters cover the sea. May that happen, and may that happen even through us. How does that happen through us? It happens when we are those who are filled by the Holy Spirit of God so that then we can go out and we can tell people the truth of the gospel, which is the glory of Jesus Christ, so then they hear and see and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why is it that sometimes we struggle glorifying the Lord? Up there it says glory to God alone. When you walked in it said to God alone be the glory. How is that going to happen? It's only going to happen when we are people who stand in awe of the glory of God. And too often I fear that the doors are closed and there's this (laughs) knock on the door. And it's not a visitor, and it's not a guest. Do you know who it is? It's Jesus Christ. He's out there. He's knocking on the door. He says, he's looking in. He's saying, I see you're having a fellowship meal. Who are you fellowshipping with? He's looking in. He's saying, I see you're taking the Lord's table. Who are you communing with? He's looking out there. He's saying, I see you're worshiping together. Who are you worshiping? We will not Know the glory of the Lord if Jesus is on the outside. Jesus has to be in here. He has to be among us. The glory of the Lord in us as we are people filled with the Spirit so that when we go out in courage and boldness to say, Lord, fill this earth with your glory and your truth of the gospel. That will not happen with marketing campaigns. That will not happen with slickly devised programs. That will not happen with advertising. That will not happen with anything but with your life. Your life has to go out there and fill this world with His glory. We are not home yet. Throughout all of their journeys, the Israelites had to look to that cloud to direct them until they reached the promised land. And so, 
as we are led by God's glory and Jesus Christ, as we seek and desire the earth to be filled with His glory, throughout all of our journeys, He is with us. He is leading us. He is humbling us. But He's taking us to a better country. He's taking us to a heavenly one. A new Jerusalem. A new heavens and a new earth. And in that new heaven and new earth, it says that city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the lamp is the lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do not want Jesus on the outside looking in. I want him here among us, in us. I want him here shaping us and forming us and molding us. I want him here to be glorified and his name lifted high and exalted. I want him here cherished and loved and desired above all else. I want him here among people who cling fast and hold fast to him in life. And we know that as we cling and hold to him, he also at the same time is holding us fast. Oh, Lord, show us your glory. Let it fill up our lives. Because if it does not, there's no way it's going to go out from us. Let us desire that. Let us seek that. And may you do that work in us and through us. Father, if there is someone here today who does not know Christ, I pray they would realize that he is the great Savior and that they are great sinners. And the only way to be forgiven of their sin is to repent of their sin and turn to him. And that they would do that. And then they would be filled with the Spirit of God filled with new life and new light, filled with new desires and new affections, filled with hope, peace. There is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved but by Jesus and Jesus alone. And so I pray that you would work in our hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.